0: Welcome to the Umiwi Amplified podcast: interviews with women leading social impact, hosted by Suzanne F. Stevens, international speaker, author, and multi award winning social entrepreneur and founder of the Umiwi Social Impact Group. Enjoy the wisdom that will be a compass on how to make your contribution count for you, your organization, and your community.
1: Welcome. You Me We amplified podcast. I'm Suzanne F. Stevens, your host. And welcome to those who are joining us live. Let us know you're joining live and leave a comment so we can say hello. And welcome to those who are watching the recording. This episode is sponsored by You Me We Community, women leading social impact. If you have a social impact and want to grow it and you and your business, visit the community tab at youmewe.ca. I am so excited for our guest, Dr. Natasha Williams, clinical psychologist who makes women from typical self-care move to radical self-care by redefining what selfishness is so that they can improve their physical, emotional, and mental health, such an important thing After two years of the pandemic. During her career as a clinical psychologist and one of the founding clinical directors of Allied Psychology Services, she has empowered many women to challenge their gender, cultural and ethnic paradigms to create a new narrative for themselves so they can work through their healing process, live their life on their own terms, and ultimately become the best versions of themselves. Coming to you all the way from Toronto, Ontario, Canada, please welcome. And if I can call you Dr. Natasha, that's okay.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Hello. Hello. Thank you so much, Suzanne. It's a pleasure to be here. It is such a pleasure to interview you as a
1: fellow professional speaker and someone who spoke at the you, Me, We International Wednesday last year, it was a year ago at that event. I'm excited <laughs> to dig deeper into your expertise and the social impact that it creates. So welcome and great to have this conversation with you today.
2: Awesome. Thank you. So why don't we dive right into
1: it? What was the catalyst for you to decide to become a clinical psychologist?
2: Oh, my goodness. For me, to become a clinical psychologist, I have to go back to my mother. And I lost her at 13 to breast cancer just mere weeks before I was to start high school. But in though, and that's a little bit of time that I had with her, she had such an impact. Now, she wasn't a psychologist herself, but it was how she embodied and embraced her position in the Dominican community. So she immigrated here from the Commonwealth of Dominica. So the way that she just presented herself, her motto was, if I'm being lifted, I'm lifting others as well. So how do I not only help myself, but help others? And it was in that spirit. And it was something as simple as moving from an apartment to a house, to another house, but not leaving anybody behind. If I can do this, I am also going to help you to do it as well. So it was just how she presented herself in the community that was just an absolute joy to see and how the others in the community completely and honored her and respected her. So the minute I entered high school, I knew I wanted to be in a profession that I would be able to amplify and help others. And I naturally went into psychology, which was interesting in comparison to other things like psychiatry, for example, which does some similar work. But I really wasn't into the medication aspects of mental health. I really believe that if I understood the basis of behavior, then I could truly, my, my gifts and my talents could truly come to the surface. So that's how I started my career.
1: What a beautiful story and for your mother to have an impact at such a young age that it really put you on a trajectory for your life. That's incredible. A lot of mothers would envy that because years and years and years they're around and kids never listen to them. (laughs) (laughs) So, (laughs) (laughs) Although I know you work with several diverse uh, clients, there is an emphasis on black women.
2: It's it's such a convoluted and complicated issue, but I think the way to even start with it is that there is a stigma in particular in the Black community in regards to mental health and mental illness, and it actually pushes us away from actually getting the help we need. Now, adding to that stigma of mental health and mental illness in the Black community, there's also this, what I call an archetype, and it's the archetype of the strong Black woman. And it's almost like a mask or a veil that a lot of Black women wear, which also on top of the stigma of mental health doesn't allow us in my eyes to be human. It really means that we have to be strong at all times, uphold everybody, everything, while we almost dehumanize ourselves and not allow ourselves to get the help or the or whatever we need to be full human and full Black women in all of our glory. And I noticed that I was, I'm not immune to that either. I noticed that I was going down that same trajectory just in terms of a lot of the myths and the paradigms of the strong Black woman complex and not allowing myself to be who I am as a human and embrace all of those emotions. And going down a road where I was starting to lose my health. So being able to bring myself back, also bring in my clinical expertise, being able to put all of that together, I wanted to make sure that other Black women were also afforded all of this information and starting to dismantle some of these paradigms that have been holding us for generations.
0: This episode is sponsored by the Yumiwi community, women leading social impact. If you're a woman-identified or non-binary social contributor and you want more, more meaning, more connection, more growth, and more social impact, the Yumiwi one-of-a-kind community is for you. Visit the community at yumiwi.ca, where we, while well, you, converge your power to empower others.
1: If we can spend just a little time on that, more time on that, because I think it's such an important piece. Do you think that strong black woman is a universal comment Mm. or is it North American?
2: Mm.
1: And then I have a follow up
2: question. (laughs) It's interesting. I think it manifests itself in in a variety of ways dependent. So I do believe that there is an archetype of the strong black woman, but we also have to layer culture. So I find that there is a North American uh, archetype to it. But then when you go to the Caribbean, and adding the, the Caribbean context and culture, it does manifest In some different ways, but there are certain similarities as well. I can't speak example for the continent per se, but I believe that if you look at the African continent, you may have a lot of similarities, but some differences that culture also put into play when we're talking about the strong Black woman. But I do believe that there are quite a few similarities, just how as Black women, we are juxtaposed in the larger Black society.
1: Yeah. And as, as you know, Natasha, I spent a lot of time in Africa and don't profess to know all. But it's interesting. I didn't hear about the strong Black woman until I came back home to North America. I didn't hear about it there. But that being said, I concur with your expertise, of course, but also with my observation and reflection that it did exist in a lot of African countries. And yes, culturally, it is definitely different. But at the end of the day, the mother kept the family together. Mm-hmm. And that was 100%. Mm-hmm. A parent in every country that I traveled to in Africa and every woman I interviewed in Africa, she was the one that kept that family together and made sure it
2: was on the right trajectory. Absolutely, and I also believe that the strong Black woman has has some interesting merits and some good merits as well. So I don't throw the whole thing away. But I also believe in that. What I've also noticed is that Black women will punish themselves if they don't believe that they're up to that certain standard. If certain aspects of the family are falling apart or not going as planned, then a lot of times the woman shoulders the burden of whatever they believe is falling apart, not looking at other circumstances, environmental or or whatever the case may be. So that's where a lot of the Punishment and self-punishment comes in because while they're upholding and supporting the entire family, they also take on the burden of anything that possibly is going wrong and they end up sacrificing themselves almost to their detriment. So I do see how that paradigm can become such a mask for a lot of Black women not to reach out for help, not to be, feel devalued at time as, at times as women because they believe that their womanhood is being compromised.
1: Two places I want to go with this. Um, yes. One is some of the barriers Canadian black women have. Mm. So let's start with that. I'm going to put both out there because I don't want to lose the other one. Cause you were, you are t- uh, talking on this as well is not only what some of those barriers are, but the barriers for them to seek assistance. Mm. So, Let's start with the barriers to
2: seek assistance. Okay. So the barriers to seek assistance, there's so many different barriers, and especially in terms of how women place themselves, for example, as the cornerstone of the family. When we start talking about access, we start to talk about things such as economics and earning potential, that ability in terms of being able to not only seek the services and support that they need, but being able to afford it. So that's one of the spaces in terms of the ability to even seek help. Now, here's the other thing. If I believe as a woman and this strong Black woman archetype that reaching out for help is actually a sign of weakness... I don't want to go because I want to uphold this paradigm. So in aiming to uphold this paradigm, I am not going to seek out help. I'm going to do everything that I can to do this myself because the minute I go outside of the family or outside of myself, I'm showing a sign of weakness. And that compromises the strong black woman that I'm aiming to be. And that barrier in and of itself ends up being a significant difficulty to aim to get the help that somebody needs. Even sharing it with somebody else, not even a professional per se, a family member or somebody else. If I share this, it may show cracks in the armor because I wear this armor as a strong black woman. And the minute I start to show cracks, I start to show vulnerability and strong Black women technically do not exist in the same room.
1: Is it the the differences in cultures so much so as the, the readiness for a culture? And bear with me on this. There was a time when white women, and still a time when many white men or BIPOC people don't want to share their information either. And it came to a point where we eventually did mm-hmm. and are much more open. Now, we're not a sweeping statement alert, right? Because not everybody will. Mm-hmm. In the Black community, do you see that there will be a shift? Or do you think that shift is going to be a longer, harder shift to make to actually seek help?
2: You're absolutely right. I think it is going to take a longer time. There's been inherent mistrust of the healthcare system in the Black community because the the medical community has used Black bodies and Black individuals for such a significant period of time as guinea pigs in so many aspects. We all, we talk about, for example, Henrietta Lacks and the experiments that they did with her cells and that they continue to use till this day without permission and when we think about that history and how the healthcare system has continually used black bodies for experimentation not to our health but to our detriment killing so many or maiming so many of us to now ask for this same health community for our trust there is an inherent mistrust And I think it's going to take a significant period of time to actually build that trust back if at all. So it's a tough one, because we obviously as black community want to be the healthiest as we can be. But the inherent mistrust of westernized medicines and the medical system, I think will make it extremely difficult. This is where you come in. And
1: this is where your social impact is so profound. And why I really wanted to interview you is because With someone like yourself, they see themselves in you, not only because you're a Black woman, but also because your journey, you admit to, you also were getting caught up with that archetype as well. So how are you able to break through that barrier and wall that has been built by, frankly, the white community and give people access to help?
2: It is such an amazing question because I think what's also very interesting is that I've although I have been trained in westernized countries so my training is in Canada and the United States what I also had to recognize is how do I dismantle some of the decolonizing education and training that I have received as well so while I understand that I also had to understand What are some of the Indigenous or African-centered principles that are also going to inform my practice? And I bring all of that into the engagements and interactions that I have. So yes, you see me as a Black woman in the space, as a psychologist taking care of mental illness, but I also have had to understand that I'm not also bringing paradigms that have inherently hurt our community. I'm also bringing a very decolonized, holistic, African-centered perspective to our community as well, so that what it does, it starts to bring about a an environment and culture of safety in the space so that people can feel an increased amount of safety when they're starting to share and, and understand what it is that's been going on with them for such a long period of time. And bringing that decolonizing history to the therapy has also been very important so that they can understand what the grassroots and the foundation has been in a lot of our hurt and mistrust and how can we then position ourselves uh, for our own healing.
1: It begs the question, there's no doubt you're phenomenal at what you do, but how do you get someone from not needing help to tr- even trusting
2: to ask you for it. Mm I find a lot of things very interesting in, in our community in particular. So I've been visible in the community for several years, and that has been volunteering, for example, with grassroots organizations or community health care centers. So my face has always been there. And I think that's the first point of contact of trust. So I'm not, I'm not like this fly-by-night person that just came along out of nowhere. I've been doing the work and I've been in the community and I've been doing community work for several years. So that sort of starts to build that area of trust. The other interesting thing is that a lot of people will come to me when all of a sudden they don't feel like they have anywhere else to go. I've been in the mental health system for quite some time. I've understood that I have not been treated well by the mental health providers that I have been in contact with who do not look like me. And I still need help, but my options are limited. I need to come to you. And yes, seeing someone that looks like you is the initial point of contact, but we also can't guarantee because two look alike that they actually practice alike. I do offer that space of safety and, and a place of security and lack of judgment. That's the other thing as well. So once I'm able to start to foster, that's where the healing starts. And I think that's some of the most important pieces to get somebody from a place of, I'm not going for help or whatever, because they've already had a maybe some negative experience or they anticipate the negative experiences. So being able to foster that culture of safety and security is one of the most important things that I, I look for in, and do in my practice.
1: Which is so important, no matter who is listening to this interview, you're creating a social impact or you're not creating one. One of the best ways to foster trust is by having a social impact to have a social impact, <laughs>
2: <laughs> yes. uh,
1: be it through volunteerism. And at the end of the day, I have no problem and, and strongly believe making money while having a social impact is actually the way to sustainability. So I think is a very important part of it. But when people can volunteer to make that connection for that trust, I think it's very important. And usually that's not why you do it, but that's the residual of doing it. Yes. So I want to go back to a question I skipped over. A big question. Okay. You know, what are the barriers do Canadian women have and why do you think they have them?
2: That's well, interesting. And I'm glad you put you framed the question that way in terms of Canadian women, because I think a lot of times what we do is we make a very generalized sweeping question of Black women. And the, the reason I love the way you framed the question is because we also have to understand that the Black Canadian experience while there are some similarities to our, our sisters and brothers in the US or our sisters or brothers in England, it doesn't mean that it's apples for apples. So uh, thank you for the, the framing of that question. What's interesting with, I believe, the Canadian Black experience is that it is an immigrant experience. Uh, for the most part, you do have a sub a section of Indigenous Black who have generations here in the country, but a lot of, quite a few of the Black community and Black women in particular have an immigrant experience. And that has been a bit of a barrier in terms of the ability to actually access help. And again, for a lot of reasons, we bring about the stigma of mental health and mental illness. A lot of the, the Black women who've come here from the Caribbean who have actually come on their own before even bringing either spouses or children and all of these kinds of things, you have an underlying, what we call a separation and reunification aspect that is happening in the community. So yes, they're asking for help. But again, if we're going back to the strong black woman complex, I need to keep my family together. So even though I've left children and now that they're coming back that experience, I I have to work on keeping my family together. I don't have time to, go to a therapist or go do this and go do that. I have to take care of all of this. So that's where that strong Black woman complex comes back in again. The other piece of it, I do believe as well, which I think is of the utmost importance, is that there is an inherent belief that that there's only one type of therapy. And this is, I think, another thing as well. When we talk about access, we also make the assumption that uh, a Black woman has to go outside of herself, make her arrangements and whatever to go to the therapist and get the therapy. And what we've noticed, and especially from an African-centered dynamic, is that if you want to heal the community, you have to go into the community. So healing can ensue in so many different ways. It is not about the ivory tower alone, go to the nine to five, go into the office. That psychotherapy is great, but African-centered is truly going to look at how do you go into the community, go into the community spaces, go into the homes, wherever the healing needs to happen, that's what has to happen. But unfortunately we are in a Westernized society that believes that everything has to be outside of self. And I think that in and it of itself becomes a barrier because we're only focused on a very Westernized aspect. I'm getting shivers from
1: what you're saying because it is just so true. and when anyone has a social impact, ultimately you have to go to the other person. That's right. You you have to. They cannot come to you. You have to go to meet them where they're at, in their culture, in their environment, under their values and circumstances. It is such an important message. And thank you for sharing that with us. And, And thank you for your comment about the Black Canadian woman I do think that's a very important piece because we often, and we've seen it over the last two years, right? Everyone, oh, that's the States. That's U.S. That's U.S. Does that? No. We're seeing too much in Canada that has been under the carpet and and now is being exposed in real meaningful ways. When I introduced you, I mentioned typical self-care to radical self-care by
2: redefining
1: selfishness. Yes, yes. Tell us how that shows up in the
2: people you work with. Ah, Thank you for that. Yes. What's so interesting is that a lot of times when we're looking at taking care of self, a lot of times as women, and in particular as Black women, we relegate ourselves to last. And we only bring in any kind of self-care when we're in a desperate mode, when our health is really starting to fail or whatever the case may be. We are reactive and not proactive. And I think that's one of the first things we have to look at. Typical self-care, while it is nice at the time, so for example, manicures, pedicures, those kinds of things, these are great things to do, but when you're in a space of, then I, gotta go, I have to do them with guilt, and then when I come back home, I'm like, oh, I only carved out this much time because that's all I could afford. It comes from a place of reaction, but it comes from a place of, I shouldn't have it, but I need this. When we talk about radical self care, we talk about being able to change mindset first, before you even ensue half of those behaviors. It's understanding our worth as women, as human beings, and what we are are capable of, but what we're known to, to be worthy of. And once we're able to start with the mindset, that's where all of these other behaviors can be done unapologetically. And I usually quote Diana Van Zandt, basically saying that it's not about selfish, it's self full So being able to redefine selfishness, we understand that We have to make sure that our cup is full first before we can be of service to others and whom we choose. Just because we're women, it doesn't mean that we have to serve our spouses, our children, whatever. We then choose whom we want to serve or or take care of or whatever the case may be. I think a lot of times we embody that as part of womanhood to become this great woman We have to be a sacrificial lamb, putting ourselves on the back burner. Radical self-care brings us to the forefront and makes sure that we are functioning holistically, body, mind, and spirit, so that we can be the best version of ourselves, mother, wife, friend, whomever. But we have to remove, we have to move ourselves from the back to the front.
0: This episode is sponsored by the Yumiwi community, women leading social impact. If you're a woman-identified or non-binary social contributor and you want more, more meaning, more connection, more growth, and more social impact, the Yumiwi one-of-a-kind community is for you. Visit the community at yumiwi.ca, where we, well you, converge your power to empower others.
1: Now, do you find that black women, do they have barriers to accepting the notion that you're putting forward?
0: Yeah. Yes,
2: definitely. I find that it is a bit it's a bit challenging because we have been trained and it's been ingrained in us to relegate ourselves to last because our womanhood and our black womanhood has been defined by that self-sacrifice putting everybody else ahead of us. Our health could be failing but oh she's doing it for the greater good. So there is a there's almost a reward For all of this. And we add other things like religion and and a lot of the religious um, aspects that a lot of Black women have been raised in. I've been raised in a Christian household. So a lot of Christian religious paradigms also seep into culture and add to this whole notion of self-sacrifice to our detriment so initially you can hear a lot of what has been generationally woven into our psyche and that's what makes the barriers a bit difficult once we're able to understand that where a lot of this generational stuff has been implanted we can start to dismantle some of it because we can get to a space where we can start saying Why do we believe after all of this time this is true? When we start to challenge some of this, this is where we can start to create our own freedom. I tell a lot of women, what I'm asking you to do is take off the cape, rip it apart, sew it back as you want it, and put it back on. Do it on your own terms and create your own rules. And using that metaphor is what helps them to start to get unstuck and live life on their own terms. And I'm really
1: happy you brought up the religious element because I do think that has such a huge weight. Even in my experience, that was the one thing that was so profound is belief Mm -hmm. that I had seen in the, the, the Black community that I have never experienced prior to that degree. There's belief and then there's commitment uh, and and celebration. It is such an important element. I'll be straight with you. My company name is you, me, we, you is first. (laughs) (laughs) But for the reason of social impact, because you need to understand the other person. But admittedly, my husband would say to me, I will always be before you. I'm not going to lie to you. That was almost a marriage barrier. (laughs) Mm. But (laughs) I can tell you 10 years I'm now with the gentleman almost 18 years, but it took me 10 years to understand what he meant. And recently I said to friends, this is the year of me. Mm. And I don't know if they understood what I meant or if they just thought, ah, Suzanne's switching it up. <laughs> I, I under—I understand what you mean by that. And I don't even have children. So if I had children, that would be a whole other a layer. Yeah. Oh. So, we innately, as women, have a lot of us have that. And I do agree with you that, again, you're experienced in this. But just my limited experience, I see it even more so with Black women.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and that religious piece, I think, plays a huge role in that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I I could speak to the Christian religion, but then also we do have a lot of Black women in the community, Islamic faith and that kind of thing as well. I, I really do find that religion plays a huge role and it's interwoven in our culture as well in terms of the paradigms and things that we believe. What's also fascinating, some of the work that I do is actually in churches itself because some of the churches actually perpetuate the stigma of mental illness. So the same churches that a lot of us as Black individuals will go to for support and sanctuary and a place of solace has also been a place of burden and being almost exonerated out of the church for the sake of not lack of understanding of mental health and mental illness, shunning people away because it's not about a mental illness. You're just not praying hard enough or your faith is not strong enough. So there ends up being this element of blame as well that also occurs. As I said, it's not a, it's not a, a, a black and white or all or nothing kind of concept, but what ends up happening is that while religion has been the cornerstone for a lot of us as Black community, in particular Black women, just take a look at the Black churches and see it is majority Black women in those churches, there's also the other element that we can't shove under the rug in terms of the church's contribution to the perpetuation of the stigma of mental illness as well, which has also caused quite a bit of harm in our community as well.
1: Yeah. Thank you for that. And thanks, Natasha, for the the comment of the custom design cape. I was thinking about what what would my cape look like? And I think, I don't know if you do that exercise, but I think that would be a really great way is getting people to make their cape out of uh, sustainable fabrics.
2: (laughs) Oh, I think that would be so interesting. Yes, I I don't do it exactly that way, but (laughs) I think that would be brilliant because it actually gives a visual element to what you are, what the metaphor is. And when you actually see it in front of you, it actually has a significant impact. Yeah, definitely.
1: Beyond counseling, do you connect with your patients in any other format?
2: Yeah, there are other formats as well. Part of it is that we do groups as well. A lot of times community outings and community events, actually going to the community health centers or the community hubs and engaging with community. They're communing with the community there as well. I also, at a time pre-pandemic, I would coordinate health and wellness days so we're able to provide those types of outlets for the community to come in and actually engage, interact, have access to professionals. So I find that having those different ways other than the one-on-one psychotherapy has to occur, podcasts, like all of these types of, of, of avenues so that you can reach people in several different formats. Again, it has to go beyond the ivory tower in my office one-on-one. So I think we have to use different modalities and different ways to meet community.
1: Did you just say that you have groups come together and you'll also have groups of therapists as well?
2: The groups of therapists, we actually, we haven't done this formally, but we actually do support one another. So there are a group of us as therapists with different disciplines, so registered psychotherapists, social workers, the CYWs, those kinds of things, where we actually support one another as well. And we do it informally, but it's also important that us as clinicians that are doing the work in the community that we support one another. No one's work is less than another's, but when we talk about the decolonizing aspect of the work and being able to bring the bring our gifts and talents to the community and especially in a way that is not harming the community, those, uh, all the, the ones of us as practitioners, we do take the time out to actually connect with one another and support one another, lift up one another and commiserate with one another as well, because a lot of us are tired. We've been two years into this, into the COVID pandemic, but I will also say the racial pandemic as well, which has absolutely blown up anything that was under the rugs. Basically, the rug was pulled out. Everything was exposed. And again, as you were mentioning, Suzanne, before, it wasn't just a U.S. thing. The veil opened up when George Floyd was murdered, yes, but Regis pochinski paquette that, that occurred right here in Toronto as well, and that opened up a real ugly veil of racial discrimination and, and white privilege and all of these kinds of things that us as Black clinicians And just as black individuals, we've been struggling with and trying to cope with as well as heal our community while we're also looking at our own traumas and healing as well. So we do get together as a community of therapists and not only just myself, there's other ones as well that I've seen that have come up as a result to really support one another because the work is hard and the trauma is very real.
1: Yeah. I'm going to dive into that just a little more in a moment because it's such an important conversation.
2: What is your the ultimate goal, particularly for Black women? My ultimate goal for Black women is for Black women to be who they were designed to be without compromise. And I think that message has been muddled over the years with a lot of rhetoric of anti-Black racism, of a lot of junk. And I want to bring Black women back to a place of understanding what our power is and the power that we hold. A lot of times we don't know because a lot of things have been fed to us in terms of what others believe we should be. And I would want my impact to be, take those people off of the throne and put God on the throne and really understand what you were designed to do and to be. So if I can empower women to be whomever it is that they want to be unapologetically, then I know that what I've been designed to do and my gifts and talents have come to the full.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and, and I, yeah, mic drop. Um, <laughs> now I've had the honor of hearing you speak a couple occasions. You must see yourself as an advocate. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and how does that show up? in your work
2: it's amazing because i actually use it as a healing tool it is actually one of the tools of healing that i use to impart on others because a lot of times especially when you have a lot of clients that are coming in who are dealing with anti-black racism workplace discrimination racial discrimination what comes into play is hopelessness this is a system that has been predicated for centuries, how do we navigate through this? There's a lot of hopelessness. And it's actually in the place of advocacy that I try to infuse that within the in the therapeutic setting so that they are able to now understand that the hopelessness doesn't have to be there and advocacy can look like different things for different people and that for me is the most important if i can instill that in them advocacy can mean the person that's marching on the street and protesting it can be the person that is now Making sure that they have a space in the boardroom when policies and procedures are being created so that they are in the room and that their voice is in the room. So it's those types of things where we're like, what is it that the system has that we're able to actually be a part of and be a part of that conversation? So that advocacy is important. And that's what I actually impart in any kind of therapeutic setting, in any of the keynotes or anything that I do, advocacy has to be a part of it because it's in the hopelessness that we lose ourselves. So it's trying to remove that hopelessness by Im- by embedding the advocacy in our healing.
1: I have a, a keynote called Harness Your Feminine Power, and it's really about celebrating how feminine energy shows up differently and how we've been suppressing it. Mm-hmm for for years in boardrooms dining rooms everywhere and i was told that we don't hire any speakers that go near feminist issues and it was for a, a female conference and yeah and i was like real so we can, even at a women's conference that's it, that's i can't talk about the power of being female and in this day and age, last week, it just happened to me last week, this day and age to respond that way. And I've, I've been looking to uh, not share who it is because I would never do that, <laughs> but to share that reality because I, too, am an advocate for women empowerment and, <laughs> and I couldn't show up as myself. It was just really uh, interesting in this day and age for that kind of response, which leads me to my question. How important do you think it
2: is for people to be advocates? Oh, 100%. I truly believe that, again, uh, the healing is partly in the advocacy, because if we believe we cannot advocate for ourselves, then we now turn around and we embody a spirit of hopelessness. So advocacy is of the utmost importance. Here's the other thing as well. I think a lot of times where a lot of people get stuck is in what they believe the definition of advocacy is. Advocacy has such a broad definition and it is on a continuum. It's not just an and or or kind of thing. Let's look at the continuum and see where you lie on that continuum of advocacy. And from there, we can then look at how your healing can ensue as a result. I had one client who... And she was feeling a lot of of pressure in her workplace and felt that she was being targeted being a Black woman. For her to then go and understand that she can go to her HR and, and in her HR, there were certain criteria of things that she could do to advocate for herself. She said, I had no idea that those things were afforded to me. Something as simple as asking those questions so that she can utilize what is already in the system for her to have her voice heard. Do we say that it has the absolute result? Not necessarily, but in the advocacy was, is that I can actually open up my eyes to see what systems are in place that I can use to make sure that my voice is heard. Something as simple as that is advocacy, but a lot of people don't even believe that is advocacy. Now,
1: do you think, uh, that a person needs to be the same race, culture, ability, size to be an advocate for someone in a different race, culture, ability or size?
2: No, not necessarily, because I know we talk about the whole concept of allyship. And I think that in and of itself has a whole very complicated connotation, which is definitely not enough time to really unpack that here. But I do believe that there is a space for persons of different race, cultures, ethnicities to align with somebody else from another culture. But I think there's also ways and means that that someone else from that culture can be an ally without being either overbearing or actually not becoming an ally, but actually looking for a pedestal to actually have a microphone and speak for themselves. So I think there's a difference, but there is space there. It's just understanding how to take up that space without actually causing more harm. Absolutely. Thanks for that. Now,
1: you've Created a great practice and also a great business as a speaker and using the number of vehicles to reach people where they're at. Although I'm sure it hasn't all been a bed of roses. (laughs) What are the two most challenging hurdles to sustain your social impact and how did you
2: overcome them? Mm. That's a great question. Sustainability is tough. And I think the reason why is because I think you always have to show up. And I think that's the interesting piece. I'm not saying that I have to be on the grind 24 hours a day, seven days a week, but I think what's important is to understand the balance between being there, being present, being visible, so that you're not forgotten. But I think also at the same time, being able to carve the space for my boundaries, because you will burn out very quick if you think I have to be there and present at all times. I've learned over the years, I cannot be all people to all persons. I have to understand what is for me and what I have to say no to. I cannot help absolutely everybody. As much as I would love to help as many as I can, at the end of the day, I also have to know what my barriers are, what my limits are, and saying no doesn't make me any less it actually provides the space that I need to help and have the greatest impact with the amount of people that I can. So that I think the sustainability over the years has been what is the balance so that I don't put myself out and then I actually do myself a disservice.
1: Was there a moment in time, something that happened where you acknowledged that you too can get consumed with your social initiative.
2: Yeah, I was literally working seven days a week. I would not stop. I was doing something every day. Now I I still work quite a bit. And and I know I could hear people already chatting saying, you still work. I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) (laughs) But no, I literally used to work seven days a week. Uh, I would see clients Monday to Saturday. And then Sunday, I would be writing reports and doing proposals and all of that kind of stuff. And it's when I decided to implement the concept of Sabbath, where, you know, as Christians, we understand that the Sabbath sundown on, on Friday to sundown on Saturday. And Different uh, denominations will practice it a bit differently. Some of them, some adhere to it very strictly and others understand the concept, but are not as strict. What I needed to do was do it for myself on various levels. So I implemented that in my life where I said, you know what? The minute the sun goes down on Friday, I'm done. The laptop turns off. I'm not working. I don't check an email. I don't do any of that stuff. And I'm taking the time to replenish and rejuvenate. So that's what I had to implement that because I slowly saw myself burn out. And once I put that in, I'm actually more productive now than I was when I was burning the candle at both ends and working literally seven days a week.
1: Yeah, my Sabbath is, starts at uh, three o'clock on Saturday and goes till Monday morning, I'm with you on that. That taking that one day for me is my savior. During the pandemic, a lot of people's businesses have been uh, challenged. And you were mentioning earlier, um, and then I wanna bring it full circle, that a lot of people may not be able to afford your services as as well. So I I was thinking, okay, Dr. Natasha Williams' business probably had a really
2: tough time during this pandemic. What say you? it it was very interesting because a lot of psychologists we were doing everything face to face or you come into the office or i would go to a clinic to to see the client so a lot of it was face to face so once the pandemic hit march 2020 and all of that face to face stuff that's where the issue was what was interesting is that My clinic, we already had a secondary portal where we had the infrastructure to do uh, virtual virtual work, but we weren't using it. I didn't even sign up for it. I'm like, yeah, we have it just in case, but I see all of my clients face-to-face, so we had no problem. The minute the pandemic hit, I signed up really quick. I was like, oh, it's time to sign up and let's get our clients on board. So it was being able to transition into that sort of virtual space where we started seeing clients virtually. The clinics that I was contracted to, they also had to understand what some of the nuances were with seeing clients virtually. Once that shift happened, and that took about maybe about a month or two into the pandemic to thoroughly understand how we can do a lot of this work virtually, doesn't replace doing it in person, but the minute that we transition that way, everything opened back up and then some, because now we have a lot more access to a lot more people just by virtue of being able to do a lot of things virtually. So that's where there was an initial stagnation and a lot of anxiety and worry, but then going into the transitioning into online, things have exploded exponentially as a result.
1: Which is great. And congratulations. Now, if people can't afford you or, or someone in, in the practice, is there a way for them to get help?
2: Yeah, it's difficult and challenging. And, and that's, I think, the difficulty of the mental health system in Ontario, never mind in Canada. Canada significantly underfunds mental health services in comparison to the health budget that we have. And it, it's been seen and known and proven over and over again. Uh, usually what we do is we'll talk about what is government funded. So a lot of times we'll look at, for example, GP psychotherapists. So these are our medical doctors who are Psychotherapists, which means they will be covered under the OHIP system. That is one area. Second area we look at is we talk about psychiatrists who are also covered under OHIP, but they don't necessarily, some of them do, but most of them don't do psychotherapy. Literally it's medication and medication management. Third avenue, would be we would look at community health centers and family health teams who usually have uh, a mental health department or mental health uh, services, usually done by social workers or, or psychotherapists difficulty there is that a lot of times there's a significant weight anywhere from from six months to a year because they are overwhelmed and overloaded. And then from there, usually if people are going to come and see myself, we're not covered by OHIP, for example, but we're covered by extended health. So a lot of times you have people that are working and have benefits and don't even know that their benefits will cover us. So we look at sort of different insurances, auto insurance, WSIB, but extended health as other avenues to get access to us in different ways and means. So there are these ways, but it still presents a lot of challenges for the community to get access. Thanks
1: for sharing that with our our audience, because I think it's important that people realize that if you need help, knowing you need it and then when you need it are two different things. Which, again, I could talk to you for five hours, but <laughs> we, we are going to move along. What ripple effect have you observed, if any, be- with the work that you do?
2: Hmm. I think when we talk about ripple effect, I, I've seen a few things. I found that when people actually come And they get to the space where they feel vulnerable enough to share and to start that healing process. Once they open up, that ripple effect ends up being actually a thing of beauty, to be very honest, Mm. because now you see the person open up to the person that they were always meant to be. It's almost like you could see shackles starting to really just break because they're able to, again, see themselves for who they are, but on top of that, embrace the journey of where they want to go. Whereas when, before they came, You could see that there was a lot of cloudiness and really a lot of dull, but a lot of despair because I've been doing this or I've been living life like this for such a long period of time. I don't know what else, but I know that this is not where I want to go. So being able to see that ripple effect where you can see the healing start because I'm just an agent for it. The healing has to continue, but I can provide this, the tools and the skills to start the healing and then they take it from there. And that ripple effect is great because I'll see clients and they will now contact me again and just give me updates of where they are in their healing journey, what they have they done, where they have gone. And that to me has been I think the most amazing thing. And and that's what brings me pure joy, because then I know that the gifts and talents that God has given me, I am now being able to see the fruits of them. And that for me is, is the greatest gift.
1: And everyone they touch, everyone they touch that there's a different, which you've, as we go into our rapid fire questions, I think you answered the first one. How has your clinical psychology
2: provided meaning in your life? Oh, that, that's it. Because to me, the clinical psychology is a title, but under the title are the gifts and talents that God has given me. And being able to be able to know that I was created to do this and share this with the world, it has been the greatest gift. Was there
1: one thing you wish you knew prior to becoming a clinical psychologist?
2: The amount of years that it would take to become a clinical psychologist, that was it. <laughs> <laughs> like, I kept on going to school and going to school and I was like, 10 years, 11 years later, I'm like, oh, geez, (laughs) this is long. So if I knew then what I knew now, but (laughs) it was all worth it though. What have you done that
1: has made you uncomfortable,
2: but if you did not do it, you would
1: not have had the impact that you are having.
2: Ooh, this is a, a longer story for another day, but I'll be very honest. It was the, it was my divorce. It was my divorce. There was a lot of things that were happening in my marriage that I had to leave And it was in my leaving that propelled me to where I am at this point in terms of the skills and tools and knowledge that I use now to help other women in particular.
1: Your power to help them find their power. Absolutely. Worst piece of advice you ever received?
2: (laughs) (laughs) It's so interesting. I think I was just actually speaking about this yesterday. I think someone was telling me about, and this is years ago, about, yeah, you're cute, but if you lost a little bit of weight, you'd be really cute. And I'm like, and I fought that for a long time. And then I'm like, no, I'm healthy, I'm cute, and I'm curvy. So that's just fine. So got to love those curves. You could take your advice and give it to somebody else. That's all (laughs) right. Best piece of advice you've ever received. Oh. My mother gave me the best advice, even though she was, uh, wasn't around long. You can be whomever it is that you want to be. There's nothing stopping you from being whomever it is you want to be. Because there's always this paradigm of because you're a woman, there's certain things. And she squashed that real quick. She goes, you can be absolutely anything you want to be. Just go and do it.
1: Which of your strengths do you rely on most to have the success you have achieved?
2: Mm, which strengths? And it's so interesting, you hear the word strength and you think physical strength. It's it's faith. It's my faith. My faith is my strength. I will say that unapologetically, because I think without it, the other strengths don't come about. That faith I have and the, the relationship I have with God has powered me to, to great places, and I know we'll continue to do so. Great. Besides
1: yours, which beneficiary do you think needs the most investment of time, research, and money?
2: Ooh. To be very honest, I did a lot of years in the community health center sector, and I truly believe that they need an injection of time, energy, resources like none other. They are seeing clients and they're seeing such a surge of issues that I think they're being underfunded. I've sat on their boards and that kind of thing, significantly underfunded. And I truly believe that the grasswork work and the community work that they're doing, community health centers truly need that funding and that assistance.
1: What leadership advice do you have for people who want to have a social impact?
2: Be unapologetic. To be a leader, you don't have to question everybody else. Stand strong in what you know and who you are. And and as a leader, others will know and appreciate that and respect that.
1: Now, I don't know, Natasha, if you have any children, but if you did have Okay. A 10-year-old daughter today, Oh, what advice would you give her?
2: Oh, that's an excellent question, actually, because my niece is 10. So, you know, the advice I give her is you can do absolutely anything. I teach her everything that I've learned from my mother to my father as well. So there's no gendered. Roles or anything i teach her anything from grilling in the back in our barbecue to being able to cook a meal nothing gendered you're learning how to do everything and it's not about it's not about your gender or your sex
1: what advice do you wish you received
2: i wish i actually received that advice a little bit stronger because as much as my mother said it I know she was still in a very uh, gendered space. So you would get these very gendered kind of messages, such as if you don't know how to cook and clean, you'll never have a husband. And I'm like, geez, I guess I'm going to be single. Just kidding. But yeah, I I wish that I didn't get that kind of advice. Those are some of the things I had to fight. Now,
1: I suspect I know the answer to this one, but you never know who's the greatest female influence in your life.
2: Easily, my mother.
1: (laughs) Yeah, which is so beautiful. And what
2: three values do you live by? Faith, hard, hard work consistency, and patience. I've learned those things along the way. Thank you for that, Dr. Natasha Williams. And
1: thank you for those who've you that were able to join us live you can subscribe to you me we amplified podcast so you receive each new interview notification in your inbox with others please share this interview by going to the share button located on the page each of our guests has their own page with their bios or contact information not their home phone numbers just their emails <laughs> not their emails either actually their websites it's all there so the interview is available in podcast transcript and video so you can digest it in any way you want. And if you want to grow your social impact, join the Yumiwi community, Women Leading Social Impact. Visit us at Yumiwi.ca, and you'll find the community page there. And I'm coming back to you, Natasha, for the final words. Do you have any words of wisdom for our audience regarding making a contribution to society?
2: Understand that your contribution to society is needed, is valued, and is respected. So Make sure that what you do and you do it well, because our society needs you.
1: Amen. I've been saying that a few times. Thank you so much for everyone joining us. And thank you, Dr. Natasha Williams, for your contribution, because it definitely does count. And until next time, make your contribution count for you, me, we.
0: This episode is sponsored by Make Your Contribution Count for You, Me, We, a book written by Suzanne F. Stevens. It's time to act. Let this book be your compass to having a sustainable social impact while living your most meaningful life. Visit youmewe.ca book for more information. Thank you for joining us for the You, Me, We, Amplified, Women Leading Social Impact in Their Communities and Beyond podcast. For more interviews, visit youmewe.ca podcast. Until next time, make your contribution count for you, your organization, and your community.